Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. It is good to sing the promises of our King to one another so that we can hear them over and over again and remember them. I just heard this quote that um, when we sing, we pray twice. We, we, we sing these things and we pray these things because we don't understand them and we want them to be true and we want to believe them. But part of this ringing in your ears and your heart is remembrance so that we might claim these promises to be true. That through fiery trials, his design is not to hurt us and to kill us, but rather to make us more like Christ. And as it says, to remove the dross and to purify us. Before we start, let's take a minute and pray together that our hearts would be prepared uh, and also pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who meet today. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you together today as one body, thankful that we have been united in Jesus Christ. All praise be to your name, God, the giver of every good gift. Lord, there are times that we do not understand the trials that you have ordained and put in our lives, and so we weep. And other times we have great joys and can be so easily distracted um, from you, the greatest gift. We pray that today as we gathered, that our eyes would be fixed on you. I pray that as I bring the word, that I would not be proud or distracted. Lord, that you'd give me a spirit of love. We thank you for your word that is constantly teaching us of who you are. We ask that you would speak clearly and loudly to us today and that we would have ears to hear, that we'd receive it with thanksgiving, and that then we would have the the hands and the feet to walk in your ways and to do what you've called us to do. I pray for those that have assembled here today. I pray that you'd open their ears, their hearts to, to be ready for to hear your word. But I pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, some who have already met together, who have joined in thanksgiving and praise to our King, some who still will later on today. I pray, Lord, that you would make your word go forth in different lands, to different tribes, to different peoples and tongues, so that the name of Jesus Christ might be shown around the world and that you might receive honor and glory. We love you and ask for your work today in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's turn to Joshua uh, chapter 18. We are going to cover chapter 18 and 19 today. Uh, there's a guy that I listen to once in a while on the radio, this cooking show that I like, uh, Francis Lamb, and he always finishes his show by saying something like, eat well, drink well, and please tip well. Um, it's a catchy little motto. Obviously, I've remembered it. And uh, it, it reminds us to make sure that we take care of those that are around us and make sure that that's something that we care about the people in the service industry. I think he must have been in the service industry to like make this a motto. Uh, anyway, I have a good friend who really takes this one to heart. Like he, he always eats well, drinks well, and he always leaves a good tip, making sure that he's like over just the 15% and making sure he's taking care of these waiters and waitresses. But I will never forget the one story he told about him and his wife. They went out for their anniversary to this nice restaurant. And uh, 
they went, and it was for a wedding anniversary night. They, they got appetizers. They got steaks. They had, even they got dessert. Um, this is a nice place. And, the, and the, the food that night was fine, but the service was horrendous. Uh, their waitress continued to be snobby and rude. She was not kind. She did not bring them their drinks on time. She didn't refill their drinks. The appetizers were late. And then even when the food came, it was cold. It was like everything was bad and bad and bad. And when eventually he called the manager over to talk about this, it didn't go well. And understanding that this service was not good. Uh, The food was not good. I mean, the food was fine, but the service itself was not done well. It wasn't like she was new either. It was like she just didn't care about her job. Um, anyway, he went on and on about this terrible experience, and now he eventually, you know, had to call the manager over and leave the, the restaurant disappointed. Um, as he finished telling up the story, I remember kind of looking at him and being like, man, I'll bet you didn't do your usual, you know, 20 or 25% tip or whatever you normally do, because I know you usually take care of people. And he goes, oh, I left her a tip all right. And I'm thinking maybe like $1 bills and like coins all stacked on the table, like to make a point or something like that. But he looks me in the eye and he goes, I gave her a $100 tip. And and I'm like, what in the world? Can you imagine being that waitress? Knowing how the night went, knowing that you've done a terrible job, that you've brought them bad food, that you haven't taken care of them, that you've been rude, that your manager even got called over to deal with this whole situation. And then when it comes time to pay, you realize it's not a mistake, but that you have a tip. It was a $100 bill that he gave this girl. Can you imagine understanding that you don't deserve that and have been given something that is not rightfully yours in any way? I mean, I can see her almost looking frankly embarrassed as she receives this tip and feeling that this is not equal to what happened in the service of that evening. This feeling of unequal reward is present in our text today. Today we will learn that Yahweh doesn't give his people an inheritance that is based on how well they obeyed. Now, he is faithful whether the people are or not. Their obedience does matter, but it does not thwart the plan or the power or the promise of our God. It does matter. Last week we learned this. If you remember, we looked at chapters 14 through 17, and we learned that the obedience does matter how it's done. If you remember this, we looked at the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Joseph. They were put next to each other, and Judah, through Representative Caleb, did it the right way, and Joseph didn't. Now, both asked for land, both asked for their inheritance, and they received an inheritance. But the narrator made it very clear that Judah had inherited the land properly, according to God's requirements. Judah is propped up as a tribe that possesses the land properly, They took initiative. If you remember, they recount the blessings and the promises of God. They ask for the land specifically. They even trust God that maybe he will go before us and make a way for us to have this land. And then he finally deliberately obeys by taking steps to go possess the land. On the other hand, we have Joseph, the tribe of Joseph. They inherited the land with less than stellar methods and attitudes, if you can remember. The tribe of Joseph asks for a different allotment of land one that's based on their great numbers of people and their so-called blessed status. But eventually, through the text, it's revealed that they really want a different allotment because they're unwilling to obey God in the hard things of going against the people that have the chariots of iron. They, you know, it's, it's something we don't really want to go do. It's kind of hard. We want a different allotment. 
The tribe of Joseph isn't willing to obey in the hard things. And yet, in the end, although the tribe of Joseph doesn't get what they're asking for, Joshua and God, therefore, grants them an inheritance, a possession of land. They get it. And as we move into the rest of the allotments, these remaining seven tribes, we come face to face with more of the same. It may be difficult for us to see as we quickly read over all these names and territories and what's going on, but I'd like us to see that the remaining tribes here are not like Judah in their actions. Matter of fact, they're not even like Joseph. They do not pursue their inheritance with zeal and with faith. In fact, they don't even pursue their inheritance at all. Let's read Joshua 18. I want you to take a look. We're going to read the first 10 verses. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take the possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out, to this, out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Judah, uh, Joseph shall continue in the territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions, and bring the descriptions here to me." and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage, and Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave them. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land, and write a description, and return to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns and seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. So the first stage of the conquest has been completed. We saw this already. It ended in chapter 12. And as we transition in, we see that they are finished up with their specific united military strike against the major Canaanite power throughout the land. The end of verse 1 here says that the land lay subdued before them. This means that they finished, they did finish the initial military work of subduing all the Canaanite powers in the land that stood in front of them from going and inheriting their land. They are finally able to stop and breathe for a moment, They feel comfortable enough to kind of almost let down and somewhat get out all the tabernacle tent gear and set it up. They're in this position now to properly come before God in his presence. This is the first time we've seen this in Joshua. Notice in verse 1 that the whole congregation has gathered together at Shiloh. It's a pretty central location in the land, so they're all together. And they have put up the tent of meeting, the tabernacle where God met his people. Israel is taking their cues from the Lord. If you remember, all the way back to 13.1, it was God who told them to move into this new phase of obedience, that they were now beginning to allot and possess these lands that God had given to them. 
It is here in these texts that we find paragraph after paragraph about boundary lines, lines, about topographical features, about cities, about mountain ranges, about gardens, real things, real cities, real places, wells and fields and mountains and forests. All of these things are displayed in these next sections here in these chapters. We're watching as God gives actual definition to his promises. In our context, if I can kind of just play it out for just a minute, it'd be like if we had a new ordeal and a new governor came and we're going to create a new Virginia. In our area, we're going to start allotting some of the lands out. And we did something like this. We gave to one of the representatives here. This would be our area. And it said something like this. Your territory begins at Red Mill and runs all the way down through Pungo, down Princess Anne Road until you get to North Carolina. From there, Munden Point will be yours and all of the North Landing River your western border will go up from North Carolina following Blackwater Road and all the way back to Salem. Now, you and I say, okay, we know where almost all those things are. You didn't tell us exactly. Where, that's not the point. You and I have an idea to understand all those different topographical areas. We've kind of been around them. We've probably driven some of those roads. At the very least, we know about them. God was not giving them some nebulous inheritance. No, this was real tangible, measurable, walkable, or even ownable pieces of property for these tribes. It was for them that had real features and cities and resources for them to conquer. Far from being some old list of cities and territories, this entire section is brimming with excitement and opportunity to go into this new land and possess it for their own. I'm not sure if this registers with any of you, but this is, to me, like super cool. Like they would finally know this is ours to go in and take. You kind of have this mass movement of homesteading and city acquisition going on. And they're going to go in and take all these things properly for themselves. They were gifts from God. It's not just some joke. It was actually something that God was giving to them. Not just a metaphor, I'll give you great lands. No, he like writes it down. This one to this one to this one. That is yours. It's for you to settle, to drive out those people, to enjoy, to farm, and to live there. So this is where we find ourselves. At this point in the story, we're at the stage where we're watching as Joshua allots all of these lands to the people. And it is far from boring. It may be for us, I, I recognize that when we first read it. But now as you see it and we think about being there, we realize how important this is. And we also realize how important it is for them to have real landscape, real cities that they're going to go to and they will claim as their own. So this is where we find ourselves. And we remember that the tribes east of the Jordan, uh, Reuben, Gad, half of Manasseh, have already received their allotment, which, by the way, they asked for. That's important. Last week, we saw the tribe of Judah and Joseph also ask for their lands. And now the seven tribes remain. Now we're at chapter 18 and 19. These tribes have not received their inheritance yet. They have not been allotted them at all. And probably more important that we need to pick up on, that we need to notice that they have not asked for an inheritance. They have not pursued any land, any inheritance, any possession, possession in any way. Despite their enemies being subdued before them, despite having rest from war, there still remains seven tribes who have not taken God's gift and promises seriously. They have not moved forward. They stand here at Shiloh before the Lord, probably thankful for what has happened, but they haven't done anything about what God has gone before them and told them to do. 
not thinking about God's promises and what they're supposed to do in their future. Look at verse 2 here. It says, There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? This is not a friendly reminder. This is a confrontation. He is saying to them, Why haven't you obeyed yet? What are you still doing standing here? Like, how long will you put off your responsibility and your reward? It's for you. God gave you this awesome land flowing with milk and honey, and it looks as though you're just kind of following me around. What are you doing? This is your land. Why are you not going to go and get it? Seemingly, from the tribes, there's no specific answer. They're kind of, uh, and they don't have an answer here. And so Joshua takes the initiative for them. Notice that. Joshua actually goes in and says, okay, I'll tell you what the plan is. Guys, let me tell you what you're going to do. Joshua gives them a plan, takes three representatives from each of the tribes, and sends them to survey, to describe, and then to divide up the land. They will bring these divisions back to Joshua, back to Shiloh, and he will take these divisions before the Lord and cast lots for them to see whose position is what, for what tribe gets what part of the land. And so the plan seems good to the tribes. They carry it out. And then by the end of verse 10, we finally get our full understanding of the whole framework that is setting this up. Again, when we get to 18 and 19, we're not just getting boring lists of a bunch of stuff going on. Again, not only is it real, but he is framing it off with these stories, both at the beginning and at the end. And we're going to see things throughout that are helping us clue in that our author is trying to teach us something. So here we have in 1819 the seven tribes that are allotted. We have Benjamin, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. Now, I will not take the time to read through all these territories, but I will talk through them. And I want to make sure that we, we take notes here and we can't ignore what's going on in this text. Remember as a reader, if I can just give you a, a, a brief aside, when you see a big, long set of lists of people over, and it almost looks like it's repeating over and over again, just with a, little, a few little details here and there, it's very important for you to clue in on two parts. One is to see what is the same about every one of them. That's important because it's a pattern on purpose. But that pattern is set so that the second thing, what is different about them? When you realize what is different, that's where you need to clue in and say, why did he do this? What is the significance here? This is telling the story, even through something like land lists, these distribution lists of all these different territories. So again, for us as Bible readers, we need to pay attention then when it's a little bit different. If you were to read through this section, and I hope you will, you would see that the formula Joshua uses to explain possession is very similar for each one. And what I mean by formula is like the first few words are the same every time, the last few words are the same every time. He kind of goes about it the same pattern, almost rhythmically, like you know this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and this is. Now go to the next tribe. This is going to happen, this is going to happen. It's going to almost rhyme over and over again. You'll also notice that most of the allotments recorded have about eight verses that describe them each one time. But you will also notice the differences. Let me take a moment then and point out the differences because, again, it's here that we find the significance of what the author's trying to do as he talks about possessing land. It's not just a part of history. It is important for us to understand that there is theology to be learned, both about who God is, but also about his people. Notice first, then, the tribe of Benjamin's allotment is not described in eight verses, 
but in 17 verses. That's a lot more. That's very different. If you look down in chapter 19, you're going to see all the headings there of these little seven or eight section, you know, verse sections where Benjamin is totally different. That should catch our attention. I have to be honest, I worked hard on this and I'm not exactly sure what he's doing here, except for this. The, the tribe of Benjamin's territory is not very big, but it is at a very key spot within the land. It's very important because it holds many of the important towns. It also, to come, will be the place where Saul, King Saul, the first king, comes from. All these things lend in credence that this is an important area for us to understand well. Again, there may be some other things here, but for today and our purposes, I think this helps us to understand that there is something unique about Benjamin because he's got so much information that's given to him. There's no specific comment of why they do this. It's a little bit strange, but it's, it's right. Now, second, so that's the first one. If you look through all of these, look at Simeon for a minute. Look at chapter 19, verse 9. It says this, The inheritance of the people of Simeon formed part of the territory of the people of Judah. Because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them, the people of Simeon obtained an inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. Now this is strange, and we see the text make a decision here, and it says for us that this is because the place of Judah was so huge. But it's strange that they don't get their own contiguous, separately marked out boundaries that are theirs alone. And we want to know here, why would this be? Why do they get a smattering of cities and an area kind of in the midst of all of Judah? Why did Simeon have this happen to him? To understand this, we actually need to go back to Genesis 49. Now, if you want to look there, you can. I'm going to read it in just a minute. In Genesis 49, you have Israel, or Jacob, bringing all of his sons together, and he is going to tell them all about what's going to happen in the future. He's going to tell them what's going to happen in the coming of days. We see his blessings for some of his sons and cursing for some others. We'll see several of these things, but the most striking description here for us is the one given to Simeon and Levi. Let me read this here and pay special attention to the end. But listen to the whole thing. Simeon and Levi are brothers. This is 49, 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon and Levi, if you remember this, they were the brothers, the two brothers who in Genesis 34 took their swords and killed all the males of Shechem. They were trying to look out for their sister Dinah, who had been defiled, but they violently and therefore wrongly took revenge on these men. And so their father Jacob makes it clear that they, they shall be cursed for their anger and wrath and violence. They will be divided up and scattered throughout the people of Israel. And amazingly, as we watch now, hundreds of years later in Joshua, Levi gets no specific inheritance like this. They don't have a complete territory. And now Simeon as well does not get a defined normal allotment. In fact, if you remember, Levi doesn't get any specific territory at all. And here, we're seeing Simeon is left to occupy some internal territory within Judah. I mean, yet, we have to notice something. Don't miss, and we'll come back to this later, that they do get something. Even though they were told here that they should get nothing or they should be scattered throughout all of Israel, 
we see that they do get some sort of area of what they are given. So when we see Benjamin's description here and Simeon's, we, we pay attention to what's going on. Now, look one more thing here. I want you to look at uh, the end of 19 to Dan. In chapter 19, verses 40 through 48, we get the territory of Dan. But as the author is rounding out the very last allotment, we hear terrible news. Now, to you and I, we don't think so. There is something different here, but, but catch this. Let me just read it. I'm going to stop at a certain point. When the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them. We haven't heard anything like that yet. Now, it goes on and he says some other stuff. We read to find out that they eventually went somewhere to find uh, a, a territory and capture and possess it. But it wasn't the territory that was chosen for them by lots, by God. That wasn't the one. They lost the one that was given to them by God. In other words, the tribe of Dan failed to possess the land that was given to them by the Lord. So Dan acts in this big list of these seven different remaining tribes. Dan acts as an exclamation point at the end of the tribal allotments. Their defeat and loss of God's gift of the land makes it clear that not only did these seven tribes lack initiative to go and get their land, but when it was given to them, they didn't even do what they were supposed to do. They may have obeyed, kind of, but in the task of possessing and inheriting, they were not strong and courageous. They were not careful to do all that the Lord had told them to do according to the law of Moses. And they were not, according to God's rules, successful. And yet, and yet, God still graciously gives them something they do not deserve. At the end of chapter 19, we get a wonderful note of God's faithfulness to a man who did obey according to all that the Lord had commanded. We see Joshua getting his inheritance. And so both Caleb at the beginning, all the way back at the beginning of 14, remember this, Caleb and Joshua, both of these guys, receive a portion of the land by the command of the Lord. If you remember back to Numbers 13 and 14, we watched as these two men were willing to go against all 10 other spies that had gone in to scope out the land. And they were willing to go against all of the nation of Israel in their fear and unbelief and unwillingness to obey God and go into the land. God had been faithful not only to keep them alive to this point, which is amazing, they're getting old, gone through a lot of battles, but now he is going to be faithful in giving them victory and their own inheritance, their own portion. The Lord had come through on every promise that he had made, even though Israel already shows signs of disobedience and unbelief, not doing it correctly, not able to go in and possess the land like they were told to. Now, next week, we're going to cover chapters 20 and 21 in some detail that will help us to round this whole idea out and what's important to God. But I think it's appropriate for us to jump to the end of chapter 21 here for a moment. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Joshua 21, the last three verses, 43, 44, and 45. Let me read it. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. These ancient promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of land and rest had finally been fulfilled. Yahweh has proven himself trustworthy and true. This statement here is loaded with meaning, but at the center of it, 
we see that he has fulfilled every single promise with a perfect record. He hasn't lost in any respect whatsoever. Not one of all their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises the Lord made to Israel had failed. All came to pass. In our passage today, we watch as God graciously gives to those who do not deserve it. We watch him give and give and give like the friend that gave the bad waitress a $100 tip that she clearly did not earn. Consider this, that at Shiloh is where this allotment is given. This whole thing is done in the context where they meet God, and he is the initiator. In 18.1, we saw that the seven remaining tribes are given their allotment as an act before the Lord at the tent of meeting. And then he says the same thing at the end of this in 19.51, that this whole process is happening before the Lord at Shiloh and the entrance of the tent of meeting. This is all God's work. It is all his blessing to his people. Think about this. Both the negative examples of inheriting Joseph and the seven remaining tribes and the positive examples of inheriting both Judah, which is Caleb specifically, and then Joshua at the end. Both types of inheritors received their possession as a gift from a faithful, promise-keeping God. We should also consider that Simeon, we're going to go back a little bit, Simeon, although cursed by his father Jacob, still receives cities within Israel. He still does receive a possession. It seems like they should get nothing, and yet God gives them a place and cities to dwell in. I mean, what mercy and kindness to a people doomed to be scattered. That's what your dad said about you. You're doomed to be scattered. And yet God gives this gracious gift of a place. We should also consider Dan for a moment. A tribe that so poorly possessed their territory that they lost it. The one that God had given to them to possess, they lost it. But what we must not miss, that in spite of their inability and their disobedience, they still do inherit land. It's, an, it's amazing. We see here, after their failure, they go forward to fight, capture, and settle Leshem. How? The point of chapter 18 and 19, you'll see other information in Judges 18 when we get there, but the point here in Joshua 18 and 19 is to show that God's promises will be fulfilled. They clearly don't deserve it, and yet God gives it to them because he is faithful and he's true. And even Joshua, faithful Joshua, he must earn it, right? No, the text shows us, was it not the command of the Lord to give it to Joshua? Joshua hadn't earned anything. It was God's gracious gift. And we're watching, really, the truths of James chapter 1 play out in front of us here, all the way back here. Let me read from James 1, 16 through 18. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Nothing has changed. It was God, the Father of lights, who gave these good and perfect gifts to his people in the land of Canaan. He does not change. He will be faithful and true to his word. Paul even echoes this. If you remember when he writes to Timothy, he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, there are two key takeaways I think that we need to consider and reckon with. First, 
we just learned one of these things, that the promise, every promise of our Lord God will be kept. His plan cannot be thwarted, and his promises will never fail. You can take it to the bank. It will happen. It is not in our ability that we can do this. Somehow we have the power to break his eternal promises to his people. You and I don't have the ability to do that, even with our sin. He will come through on his word. He will do what he says. He has proven it over and over again that although his people disobey and falter and fail and come up short, he will make a way for his promises to come to fruition. For us, there is no greater example and essence than Jesus Christ. Consider for a moment. Adam, Israel, you and me, we've proven unable to live righteously before this God. In the allotment of the land, Israel proved to be inadequate. And they, they were not able to properly obey God in every area of possessing. And we have demonstrated that we cannot properly obey in and of ourselves. The Bible talks about our own righteousness as filthy rags before him. It was God's constant grace throughout the old covenant that drew his people to ask him for help and to actually help them seek him and obey. He gave faith to his people and caused them to obey him. But they did not have it written on their hearts. Something was not right. There was still something to come. They could never obey perfectly. And the sacrifice of bulls and goats could never actually atone for their sins. The whole sacrificial system, thousands and thousands and thousands of them, could never actually take the sins of man away. They needed power that they could not produce. They needed a will and a desire to love God that they could not muster up inside themselves. They needed a Savior who could actually atone for their sin. Despite all of our failure, God's promising, promises of blessing and of land and of rest and of all the other precious promises that he has given to us, every last one of them are fulfilled in Christ. In Jesus Christ alone, they are fulfilled. He himself made a way. He himself went before us. Does that not sound familiar with what we've been doing here? We're seeing him actually do this for us. He himself went before us to obey and do all that was in accordance with what Moses had said to do. Christ is our righteousness. He is our righteous obedience. And it is in him alone that we can and are able to win our inheritance. There's no other way. Despite our disobedience and our weakness, God has fulfilled all of his promises. And we fulfill every detail only by his promises and his power and his working in us. It is all up to him that he will do this in the future. This leads to the second point. If this is true, that God has been faithful to keep every promise so far, despite our sin and struggle, we can rest assured that he will fulfill every promise that we still haven't seen fulfilled yet. And, and, we can and should obey because we have these great and precious promises. Dan read about them already. Consider 2 Peter 1, 3. Listen again. God's initiative, catch this right at the beginning, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
you and I are called to life and godliness. Joshua and Israel were called to possess the land. And just like they were assured that God would go before them and give them the land, we too have been granted promises that spur us on to obedience. Not to take for granted and do whatever we want. Listen again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. In other words, he's given you everything you need and promised you that he will do it. So then, obey him. He has given you everything that you need, and all of his promises, not one of them have failed. Brothers and sisters, in spite of their failure to possess properly, look what God gave to Israel. He will do the same for his children today. He has given us very great and precious promises, and he will fulfill them. And so we are called to obedience. So may I ask you then to trust our faithful promise-keeping Christ and obey him completely. Let's pray together. Lord, would you teach us that your promises will never fail? Lord, I pray that you'd give us faith that we might believe. May we take comfort not in our ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, Lord, but in your power and ability to overcome our sin. May we see your fulfilled promises not in a way that relieves us of having to obey, but may we listen to Peter's admonition and live a life of godliness because we have such great and precious promises. Lord, as we approach your table, we look back to your promises of old, promises of redemption and salvation and blessing. Lord, these promises have come true. You have granted us redemption and salvation and blessing in the death of Christ. And it is with the fulfillment of these promises that we look forward to the day when you will come back and we will sit with you at a feast where you will make all things new, where you will put an end to Satan, sin, and death, and you will forever reign as king. Look forward to the day and ask that you would grant us faith and repentance to hold to your promises and obey you with all of our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua, and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.